You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 13th of October. And on the programme today, with half term for the children just about to start, we took a look at the travel trends with consultant Emily Jenkins from DW Travel. Now, with rumours of delays on the Hatta border with Oman, she had the answers to all your travel questions about visas and borders. And if you are looking to get cheap flights, we went right to the top to get advice from the CEO of Skyscanner, something you definitely won't want to miss. Meanwhile, Dubai has launched its very own chat GPT-style concierge, offering services and information. We spoke to one of the organisers behind that, Her Excellency Dr Moza Sawaden from the Digital Dubai Government Establishment. And climate scientists are coming up with ever more outlandish ideas for how to deal with global warming. But we hadn't heard of this one before. It's called solar geoengineering and involves dimming the sun to reduce climate change. We caught up with two experts on the concept, Wake Smith, who's a lecturer in geopolitics at Yale, and Olaf Corey, who's a professor of global security challenges at Leeds University in the UK. Plus, Robbie Greenfield joined us with all the latest sports news, including details of the Rugby World Cup. We've got the semis this weekend, and it sounds like a smashing weekend of sport. And the self-driving revolution in the UAE is ramping up. Self-driving taxis have been spotted on trial in Jumeirah 1. We found out more with Ahmed Bakhrosian. He's the chief executive officer of the Public Transport Agency at the RTA. Hey, morning all. How are you this Friday morning? Uh, I have to say the weekend for me is quite long awaited. So I'm sort of anticipating with a certain amount of joy uh, the fact that we've only got a few more hours of work. Obviously, if you've got the full day, my, my thoughts are with you. Um, and then if you're a parent, of course, you've got a half term next week to look forward to, which is, you know, it's both good and bad. You know, they're not in school, which means you have to entertain them. And in fact, many of us, and it's very typical of the UAE, I think, particularly when we all sort of go away, so many of us go away for the summer. Um, this half term always sneaks up on us slightly, I think. So we're sharing tips on the programme this morning on the best places to visit both here and abroad. Please tell me what you're doing this half term if you if you have plans. 4001 or you can WhatsApp me 04871 um, Of course, one of the most popular places to drive to from here is Oman. I've done it a few times and the border, I've never found the border too much of a problem, but we've always sort of pre-prepped. We've always sort of got our visa beforehand and arrived very early in the morning. But we've heard sort of anecdotally that people have been struggling with the Hatta border with the UAE just in the last few weeks. Uh, it's a bit of an opaque subject. So we wanted to look into it in a bit more detail and also find out more about the half-term travel trends. Uh, and I'm delighted to say that we found someone who can help us with that, a rather impressive person. We've got uh, travel consultant Emily Jenkins uh, from DW Travel. She's very kindly come into the studio, despite having landed this morning at 3am from Munich. 
Yes. Good effort. I have to <laughs> say, you, you look very well on it. <laughs> I'm pleased to hear that. I probably don't feel as well as you think that I look. So <laughs> so I was actually, you look perkier than I do. I was out last night. It, somehow it ended up being midnight. I went to go and see Matilda en masse with the whole family at Dubai Opera. Um, you know, brothers and cousins and the children who were far too young to stay up that late and basically fell asleep in front of it at the very end. Um, but it was a fantastic performance. I think that they're, I think they're probably sold out now. But if anyone can get tickets for tomorrow today I think it might be the last day or this weekend it is a really really brilliant musical and we had a wonderful time but yeah I didn't get to bed until after midnight so you are putting me to shame <laughs> with your six hours sleep um let's talk uh, let's turn our attention now to the sort of whole Oman situation um there have been a lot of conversations on the Facebook groups suggesting that there are difficulties on that Hatta border, but we haven't found anything solid. We haven't found something official. Um, have the rules there changed for people who are looking to drive into Oman, for example? So based on uh, the research that we have done, uh, not that we can see. I think the thing to always keep in mind with any border crossing is um, obviously entrance into that country is um, is up to the border control and border security that you're speaking to at the time. With driving across the border, um, there's a couple of things to keep um, keep in mind. So, if you're driving a hire car, for example, you may need you may be required um, to get an NOC from the car hire company, and not all car hire companies allow you to take the car into Oman. So, that's the first thing to keep in mind. Um, ensure that you're always carrying your registration card and that um, the car is um, has valid car insurance for Oman because again, not all car insurance covers that. You can there is an option to purchase the car insurance at the border, but those are the I guess the keys that we have been uh, that were reiterated to us that those can be some of the things that cause some issues. Um, um, are there any suggestions that if you lease hire your car, you know where you're paying it month by month, that that might be considered? dodgy by the border officials? Um, again, not that not that we have seen. Um, I think um, it just comes down to making sure that you've got all of your paperwork um, in order. If you're driving someone else's car, there's a possibility that you, you may need um, a letter from them as well just to say that it's okay for you to be taking it. Those are the only situations where I've seen that there have been issues. If you want to speed up that process, because I mean, for example, I know that Helen Farmer goes quite regularly. They have a policy of getting up at 4am when they're going to go. So they're literally the first bodies at the border, as far as I can tell. I mean, that's one way of speeding it up. Are there other ways in which you can speed up that process? Yeah, sure. So... um you can apply um, in advance for an Omani e-visa, which does speed up the process considerably because then you don't need to line up to, to get your visa sorted. Um, but, you know, at the, in terms of that, UAE citizens are visa-free into Oman um, and then most other citizens, um, you know, UAE residents, um, it's all dependent on your citizenship as to the fee you pay and, and what kind of paperwork you need. Okay, so Oman, obviously a very popular holiday destination. How about when we're on the subject of visas, are you seeing any other delays? I know before the summer, I mean, I remember in, I think, end of June, having a conversation with the guys, oh, what, I can't remember the company now. BFS. That's the ones. Yeah. They were brilliant. I was like, okay, so, you know, say you've got an, you're, you're from India, you've got an Indian passport and you want to go to the UK this summer. And she's like, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> 
guys were like, uh, okay, yeah. okay. Uh, so yeah, there are de- delays in the you know the the processing of some visas. So the <clears throat> excuse me, the two biggest delays that we are seeing having an impact on our clients at the moment is uh, with Schengen visas. So that's for uh, most European countries. Uh, in some um, instances, the delay is up to four months in trying to get a, um, an interview for that. Um, and then, um, obviously, each uh, you have to apply via the consulate of the first country you're going into in Europe. So the delays are different based on the demand for each of those different cu- countries. Well, that's something you could juggle, though, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, because you could, if you're doing a, a European tour or if you're going to Switzerland... Is Switzerland in Schengen? It is, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah, but if you but, but but you could sort of but you discovered that France is faster. Yes, then you could slip over the border. Yes, yeah. But you do Legally, need to make sure that you go into that. That is the first country you go into is the one that you got that visa from. Okay. Yes. How about the states? So at the huge USA visa delays at the moment. From uh, the last report we got, the next appointment is not until early twenty twenty five. Whoa. Yes. So huge delays. We're seeing that that's a big problem at the moment. That is really up demand or, or more? Yes. Oh, yeah. So it's a, a combination of pent up demand um, and I think um, issues in terms of um, staffing and process. That is a massive impact. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it just means you can't go to the States on holiday next year. Yeah. I mean, at all. So, so Disney World is off yeah. for this half term then. So some of what, uh, so I guess some of anecdotally what we have heard is that, um, you know, people are sitting on waiting just trying to see if anyone cancels an appointment, if they can get on, um, you know, different times of day. Uh, apparently it's a bit easier to um, to do if you're renewing a visa rather than trying to get a new one. But at the end of the day it comes down to the appointment schedule and being able to get an appointment to go along. Um, do most people need to get uh, have an appointment to get a visa. I don't think the British passport holders do, do no, they? No, so a lot of, uh, it's the same with New Zealanders, so we just need to get an ESTA, which yeah. you can do online. But if you forget that, my goodness me, you can have serious problems. Yeah. My husband missed a flight because of that. I had to travel to a very nice place. In, <laughs> I basically had to travel to, it was it was sort of a delayed honeymoon, but I basically had to travel to the Bahamas on my own. Oh no. Um, because, and he had to follow on a, on a later flight. Yes. That was not a good start mm. to the holiday. So the other thing just with, I guess with the visas as well, is I know a few months ago I came in and spoke um, with the show about the ETS, uh, the European Visa Waiver Programme. They had announced that that would be um, uh, going live at the start of 2024, but it's been delayed now till 2025. Okay, goodness me, there is quite a lot of changeability with the with visas, isn't yes. there? You really do have to check those in advance if you're considering it as a holiday. Let's talk about the places where you don't need a visa then, because they're going to be a lot more popular as a consequence. Um, yeah, of course. So, I mean, it, obviously, just as a small disclaimer, it is difficult to highlight countries as visa-free or visa-on-arrival, um, as all not all nationalities have the same entry requirements. Um, however, there are quite a few that are, um, I guess, visa-free or easy visas for UAE residents. Um, so we are seeing an increased demand at the moment for uh, travel to Asia, um, uh, based on easier visa regulations. So Thailand has been our number one destination and then Sri Lanka, Japan, Malaysia, Bali um, are all popular. Um, but uh, Azerbaijan and Georgia are consistently popular for travel um, from the UAE. They're affordable, they're close to home, um, they're great for city breaks, cr- countryside. I know they've become really popular for skiing holidays as I'm well. I'm going for my third year in Amazing. February. Yeah, booked it already. Very awesome. much looking forward to it. Um, another new interesting one um, is Uzbekistan. 
So seen an increase to yeah, increase in travel to Samarkand. I think I'm going to have to Google it. What is in that? What's in Uzbekistan that's fun? So there's a lot. There's we've got a lot of direct flights with Fly Dubai, Air Arabia, etc. Um, again, it's uh, uh, visa free, but it's got uh, UNESCO heritage sites. Samarkand is the place uh, to go. Um, you know, it's an it's ancient stunning. civilization. Yeah. yeah, it's beautiful on the Silk Road. Yeah, it's stunning. I'm mm. looking at a mosque. Uh, it looks like a blue mosque. I imagine it's called something different, but it's absolutely stunning. Yeah. Gosh, okay. And there's and there's lots of fly Dubai flights there, so it's yes. cheap as chips. Yes, so it's, that's a, a, we're seeing that as a great up-and-coming destination. Um, Japan has recently eased um, regulations for UAE citizens and residents, so allowing them to apply for e-visa online. That's interesting. Mm. And Japan is hugely popular at the moment. One of the things I would say about Japan is um, you need to book in advance for Japan. It's not an easy destination to do if you're trying to book and travel within a very short period of time. Most of our partners in Japan request that you book at least three to six months in advance, particularly if it's for a busy period like the cherry blossom season or something like that. It's, I mean, it's such a brilliant place to visit. Mm. And I hear Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Hamdan, His Highness Sheikh Hamdan, has uh, has influenced people. Yes, recently um, he was on a trip to uh, Mauritius. So I think that was uh, sometime in the last week or two. So we always see a peak in requests after Sheikh Hamdan has posted about it on his social media. Really? <laughs> yes. That is amazing yeah. that he has that big an impact. I yeah. suppose it makes – he does take the most beautiful photographs. Yes. Yeah, so it makes you want to go. Yeah. Okay, so how about uh, – we've probably got about ooh, a minute left with you. So what are the big trends that we're seeing for this half-term break? Um, so I think, um, again, we're seeing people staying closer to home. Yep. Um, often this uh, this holiday we we see you know the Maldives, um, Sri Lanka are always popular. Um, we are seeing with uh, Thailand we have seen a lot of traffic going to Phuket, but Koh Samui seems to be popular at the moment. Um, uh, as I said, Maldives always popular three hour flight time. They've got so many more options now with low cost carriers flying there and more affordable hotel options as well. Um, we're finding Saudi is particularly popular. It's coming into the season now um, for Al Ula, lots of you know festivals and um, art exhibitions, etc. Also seeing um, lots of Umrah movement as well. Um, obviously, the EVs are there for Saudi has made that um, a lot easier. Um, and then actually, we find this time in October for those who can get a visa that uh, Europe, so particularly the South, like Spain, um, Italy. Um, uh, Greece, it's cheaper, it's less crowded, the weather's really lovely Um, and uh, you know having just got off a plane from Germany I have to say that Munich is uh, is very popular, that um, you know it's a beautiful destination they've got so much to offer, cultural experiences, gastronomy Um, we drove an hour out of the city and went to a beautiful um, lake and alpine area so there's a lot going on there and you can combine that with a bit of a road trip down to Austria, Salzburg etc as well so Fantastic. Uh, well, we are, I mean, lots of options there. I will be here. I'm going to be working. Uh, so my family aren't going anywhere at all. But we mm. might do a little bit of a sort of weekend staycay or something like that if it's not fully booked. I mean, the thing is, is that everything gets so, so popular nowadays, don't yeah. they? We're actually seeing though for rates for next week. Staycations are still really good. So if you want to get in um, and book, you know, feel free to contact um, us at DW Travel on 800-398. Um, but we're also seeing that the Arabian cruise season is coming up as well. So there's some really great options for three, four, five or seven night cruises that do Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Subanias, Oman, 
Um, oh, that'd cutter. be fun. Yeah, they're awesome and they're really affordable. So it's a great option to be able to get out and see the... The, the kids know, would love that. Yes. Throw them on a cruise ship because yeah. they're, they're quite big now. They always have loads of activities, yeah, don't they? Yeah, so, oh, so much to do. Lots yeah. of entertainment shows, like kids clubs, etc. It's a really great option. Sounds completely brilliant. I have to say, I always love talking to you, Emily. always encourages me to start planning future holidays. Thank you so much for coming into the Thank studio. Thank you for having me. Amazing as ever to speak to Emily. Are you feeling inspired? I bet you are. Uh, get in touch, uh, but lovely to speak to you. Emily Jenkins there from DW Travel. Hello there. Welcome back to the programme. Good to have you with us. Uh, We are talking about half-term holidays on the programme today. We are literally hours away from most of the children breaking up. Um, Many of us still haven't got anything planned. I have nothing planned yet. I mean, my children are going to be going rogue next week, as far as I can tell. Um, But worry not, because if you are looking to get away for something last minute, we have the king of the last minute. It's none none other than the CEO of Skyscanner, uh, John Mangalars. He joined us a little bit earlier in the studio um, and admittedly he did suggest that for the cheapest deal you probably should have started your research a little in advance but he did have fantastic advice if you're looking to get cheap flights. Have a listen to this. Take your time so ideally you, you think like six, eight weeks before or three months. You don't have to book three months before but like do some research on like you know routes, airlines, like layover time. And airports, some, sometimes like when you drive a little bit from, from airport A to airport B, uh, you can make a good deal. Like, you know, really take some time to search in, in different places and, and like different options, basically, like like I said. And the other thing is keep an eye on the press. Like when new capacity comes online, like when an airline buys, for example, new aircrafts, they need to fill them. And they're, they're typically willing to like make a good deal until they reach like 70, 80% capacity of that flight. So that's also a, a personal trick I would advise. And then, like I said, like use uh, tools like uh, we have, like uh, search everywhere, uh, just to see what uh, w- where the bargains are. Yeah, so if you're not too specific about where you want to go, then you could potentially get a good deal. Uh, I have to say, I was very intrigued when Emily Jenkins there just mentioned the idea of a sort of local cruise, uh, because I still haven't, you know, I've been here nine years now, still haven't been to places like Sabanias Island, uh, haven't been to, I mean, there's so many places along the coast that I haven't visited that maybe a cheap and cheerful three or four day cruise could be the answer. Let's look ahead, though. If you're not going to go away this half term, how about the Christmas holidays? Uh, aviation consultant John Strickland uh, looked ahead for us. And I'm afraid he actually had some slightly bad news when it comes to flight costs for Christmas. This Christmas, I think exceptionally, demand is going to be very strong. And it's actually quite late in the day. If you really want to go somewhere specific, it is quite late. Many people will already have thought about it and booked. I know myself from work I did when I actually uh, was uh, working directly with airlines, we would be looking at how many bookings were coming in months ahead. And you'd see those signs of Christmas picking up six, seven, eight months ahead of time. Now we're talking about what? Not much, not much more than a couple of months of Christmas. So if you're not going for a specific occasion like Christmas and you can go in, in a quieter time, which, for example, in, in Europe would be more like January, February or coming up now, November, pick those times, pick quieter days of the week. But the, the, the peak travel of Christmas is definitely going to be buoyant and prices will already be high. Availability of seats overall will be getting quite limited already. Get your Christmas booked. Never mind half term. You need to get your Christmas booked quickly as you can.
Dubai has announced it's introducing a chat GPT style concierge offering services and information. It's a whole new platform. It's powered by generative artificial intelligence. And it is actually live now. If you want to check it out, you can go to the Dubai.ae website. Uh, and it's also available on the Dubai Now mobile application. Do you know, I was actually looking overnight at uh, just sort of, I think it was about 7pm last night. And I saw that one of the newspapers, one of the international newspapers had published already a kind of, it's been one year since we've had ChatGPT. And I looked at the date and actually ChatGPT wasn't released to the public until the 30th of November. So it's pretty impressive that Dubai has already managed to uh, sort of upgrade its offerings with a with a sort of a, a concierge style LLM uh, model. But I wanted to find out more about it. Uh, I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by Her Excellency, Dr. Moza Sawedan. She's the CEO of Digital Applications and the Platforms Sector at the Dubai Digital Authority. Joining me on Teams, Your Excellency, thank you so much for your time this morning. Can you tell me a bit more about uh, your ChatGPT style digital concierge? Uh, What will it cover? Sure. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for having me today. Uh, I'm a big fan of Dubai Eye, so I'm happy to be with you today and share a bit about uh, our new product, basically Dubai uh, AI. Um, Our mandate is to digitize life in Dubai, right, which means that we are not only looking currently at services and operations. We've been doing that for the last uh, 20 years. Uh, today, the expectation from our citizens and residents and investors and visitors uh, is much higher than what we have been doing for the last 20 years. And this is where the the bar has been risen by, the, uh, by our own government telling us we want to have a positive impact on every person who interacts with the government. The way we see things going is um, probably today, the way we provide our services is I'm, as a customer, go and visit uh, an entity through services, service centers, or I actually download an application and submit my application or the server that I want to obtain or visit an entity's uh, website, for example. The way we envision the future is that kind of step of submitting things to the government probably will go away. We've seen uh, a huge opportunity that we had to grab through uh, generative AI and uh, specifically ChatGBT uh, model, in which we envision that I'm as a citizen, which I have my mobile phone all the time and I would like to pay my bills. Instead of going to an application and submitting a request or uh, processing a transaction, I would basically talk to my phone and ask it to pay my bills for my account uh, number one, two, three, four. Or uh, my phone would tell me, for example, that um, your visa renewal is due or your car registration renewal is due. Do you want to uh, submit your renewal request? And I just say yes. And it happens for me. This is how we envision the government services and even any type of service will look like in the upcoming years, which is not very far away. We Ah. have introduced today... Sorry, carry on. I was going to say that sounds very cool indeed, I have to say. Uh, But tell me what you'd introduced. (laughs) Absolutely. So what we try to do with the introduction of Dubai AI is to basically build the the foundation layer of it. So um, we've seen that there are different applications of ChatGPT. 
this kind of, of tool, I would say, is the highly adopted technology today. I mean, they have reached 100 million users in a matter of days, which is great. And this is where we have seen the opportunity to capitalize on a technology that is expanding rapidly and reach out to our citizens and provide them services and information about the city in a way that they are already familiar with and already interested in as well. So Dubai AI today basically offers the citizens any information that they would like to know about the city of Dubai, in addition to a roadmap of upcoming features that we are currently planning uh, that basically introduce uh, services uh, in every sector. Uh, in addition to that, because we have uh, expanded our mandate from focusing to on the government to focusing on the city, we're also introducing partnerships with private sector. So the city services, the city information would be available to our, uh, uh, our Dubai citizens and residents and every category of customers uh, for them to consume uh, at the comfort of their home and in a way that is very convenient and very easy to do. The difference that we're trying to make uh, introducing this tool is basically efficiency and speed and ease of interaction with the government at every touch point. The sources that we, are, we, that we have implemented today in Dubai AI is coming from trusted sources, the owners of those services, which is our partners in the government entities. It's, it's a source that you can trust, a repository of information that actually tells the true story of Dubai and help the citizens to uh, interact with the government and obtain what they need in a faster manner. So I've just been playing with it. You might have noticed that my eyes, we're on Teams as well, that my eyes slip down to my screen. And that's because I've just written into it. I'm trying it out now, the AI model now. I said, how do I get a new driving license? Because I think I've been here nearly 10 years. I think it runs out after 10 years. It took about a minute and it's all there. Seven points, really clearly, exactly what I need to do. I've got about a minute left with you. Who are you envisaging will use this service? You know, you mentioned there that it's going to be fantastic for residents. And, and as a resident, I've just clicked on the living in Dubai box. But who else do you think will be using this AI concierge? Uh, we envision everyone will be able to use the the, the offering that Dubai Concierge basically uh, provides. Uh, today, in Dubai Concierge, you can use it as a source for you to know more about Dubai. So if you are a visitor or if you are someone who actually want to invest in Dubai and would like to see the opportunities, this is where you go and ask questions. Uh, if you are, for example, uh, already living in Dubai and you would like to choose a school for your kids, you can basically go and ask what is the highly rated school in that area? And it will give you the information immediately. It will give you a link to actually go and find more. If you would like to look for uh, hospitals, it also gives you information about that. What is the best doctor uh, for my uh, for 10 months old? It will also give you a list of clinics and hospitals. It gives you a lot of information about all the different aspects of life. Hey, Whether really? you are residents living in Dubai or planning to visit or even investing or any type of, of inquiry that you might have. It's very, very cool indeed. Can I ask you what you've used to, to back it up? As in, are you using ChatGPT's model or are you using a, a local model? You know, what's the software that's making it so effective? Because I've been playing with it now. It is very, very good. Absolutely. We, are, we, have, um, we have built an architecture basically that uh, allow us to leverage 
the current technology that are available and the giant that are actually have been investing in this technology being open AI or others. We have complemented that with our own components also to ensure that it's secured and protected because you know there is also data involved. So it's a it's a complex setup uh, leveraging on what technology that exists today in addition to different components that is uh, based on our government standards. I have to say, uh, if, if you haven't tried it out yet, and, and I imagine you probably haven't, they only launched it in the last few hours. It is very, very cool in ge- indeed. If you go to the Dubai.ae website, and then it's in the bottom right-hand corner, uh, there's a little AI symbol, and you can click on it there and ask it anything you want. So just go to Dubai.ae and try it out. I've been asking it increasingly tricky questions during the interview, and it's, it's doing very well so far, I have to say. Uh, so that's your. So put it to the test. Um, it's well worth trying. Uh, Your Excellency, a real pleasure to have you join us on the radio. I'm sure we'll have you on the agenda many more times in the future because this is such an exciting and and fast expanding space. So thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. Thank you, Your Excellency. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Her Excellency, Dr. Moza Sawaden, their CEO of the digital applications and platform sector at the Dubai Digital Authority. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. Now, it might sound like something of a plot of a science fiction movie or even maybe a spy thriller. And I have to say, when Jen and I first read this article, which is where we got the idea of doing this topic, it was just totally bananas. Uh, It's the idea that a, a nation could one day choose to dim the sun in order to try to avert climate change. We literally didn't believe that it was a real thing, but it is. Uh, It's called solar geoengineering, and people are researching it. Proper grown-up scientists are researching it as a potentially viable option to the global warming that we're seeing. And it is becoming an increasingly prevalent debate within the climate movement. For example, people have got so sort of concerned about it as a concept that more than 440 scientists across the world signed an open letter earlier this year calling for a non-use agreement aimed at halting all experiments with the technology. And you don't get people doing that unless there's quite a lot of research going on. Proponents say the idea isn't actually totally outlandish and that halting research to focus entirely on the sort of energy transition, you know, trying to reduce carbon, could leave future generations paying the price. So who is right? We're going to look into the debate of this absolutely extraordinary concept on the agenda this morning. And a little earlier, actually, producer Jennifer Crichton sat down with one of our guests, Wake Smith. Now, he's a lecturer in geopolitics in Yale, at Yale. And he actually started by explaining the basics of this geoengineering. The basic idea is that climate change is real and we absolutely need to steer off of uh, fossil fuels as quickly as we can. But there are many of us who believe that process will be expensive and slow rather than painless and quick. And so if you go to the church that I belong to, the expensive and slow church, then you need other ways to contend with the climate crisis in addition to, but not instead of, uh, decarbonization. So we also need to adapt, adaptation. We need to build seawalls and buy more air conditioners and protect against floods. We need to do all that. But those two things, mitigation, as it's called in the trade, and adaptation, 
still likely aren't enough to secure the sustainable environment that our children and grandchildren will desire. And so there are additional tools that people consider, and broadly those are carbon capture, taking carbon back out of the atmosphere, and the possibility of reflecting out a little bit of the incoming sunlight and thereby cooling the earth in that way. And again, that last thing is referred to as solar geoengineering. Uh, Solar geoengineering is not a replacement for decarbonization. It's not plan B so that we don't have to do plan A. It's none of that. But it could be aspirin or morphine for a world in the future that is in pain because of too much greenhouse gases. So in terms of those two separate aspects of it, I suspect that most people will have heard of carbon capture. We know that there is investment going into that already as we speak, although perhaps some elements of it are still to be proven effective. In terms of the second part, I think that's probably more new to a lot of people. What specifically do you mean when you talk about cooling the earth by effectively reflecting sunlight away? How would that work? Well, firstly, it might not. And so that's one of the many reasons we shouldn't put too many eggs in this basket at this time. But my personal guess, despite that note of caution, is that it would work. And so we need, therefore, to explore it. There are a lot of dopey ideas that I want to quickly get off the table. We're not talking about space-based assets that are going to be out in space. And we're not talking about painting the deserts white or making crops lighter in color. All of that stuff is occasionally talked about and is dopey. And likely it's not modifying clouds, although that too is talked about and is only maybe dopey. The thing we know absolutely would work is to recreate in a man-made way what volcanoes do occasionally. A couple of times a century, there's a huge volcanic eruption that is so powerful that it blasts sulfur dioxide, a natural substance within the Earth, all the way up to the stratosphere. And if we put lots of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere, that cools the Earth quite substantially for a year or two. And again, we know that because of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines in 1991 and Mount Tambora 60 years before that and Mount Krakatoa. There are huge natural experiments that the Earth does that tells us that this would cool the Earth. And so what we might seek to do is to recreate that sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere cooling in a man-made way. Now, there are critics who would say that We got into this mess because we messed with nature. Messing with nature further is not the way out of this mess. What would you say to that sort of criticism? That it is temporally goofy. Uh, This (laughs) is not something we're going to do now. This is something we might do in 50 years when, frankly, you and I won't be here. Those people in 50 years might be looking back at you and I and saying, thank you for decarbonizing, the climate is fine. Or they might look back at us and say, darn it, you didn't decarbonize, and the climate is really a problem. And for them at that time, 50 years from now, they won't have a time machine to come back and decarbonize today. They will confront an option of either runaway climate change or 
trying to cool the earth in an artificial fashion to get back more nearly to the to the older climate. But they won't have the option at that time of changing our behavior today. So it isn't that we should start doing this now so that we can decarbonize. It's that the future to whom we're exporting a hotter world may need this tool. The other criticism, of course, that is brought up time and again when we look at geoengineering and options like this is that anything that takes attention away from decarbonization is potentially seen as removing the urgency, I guess, to to see that energy transition. Do you think that that is a fair criticism or do you think that it's a lack of understanding of the fact that we need to take a multifaceted approach? I think it's both things. I, I think that the world might ignore what I've already said twice, that this is not a substitute for decarbonization. And so in talking about this, we need to re- communicate over and over again. This doesn't lessen the urgency of reducing our greenhouse gases, but we have to try to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We need both to try to uh, slow the uh, flow of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, but also research tools that the future may desperately need. I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. Who would take responsibility for researching and trialing something like this? Because presumably it is not something that is currently technologically available to one single nation or company. It isn't technically available, period, at this time. That's true. And the reason is that in order to deploy this, we would need hundreds, maybe a thousand, a fleet larger than that of Emirates Airlines there in Dubai, Uh, We would need an aircraft fleet that large or larger to do this globally, but it's a fleet that has to get twice as high as your Boeing or Airbus airplane can get. And those planes just don't exist. So we're not right around the corner from doing this unilaterally somehow. It's also not the case, as is portrayed sometimes in popular fiction, that one country could do this on its own to itself. It doesn't work that way. It's an inherently global intervention that no country could do secretly. The whole world would know if you were doing this. And other countries would immediately object and say, you can't do this to the whole world without me at the table. And so the incentives would run quickly towards negotiating some sort of international treaty that would govern this. But I'm not guaranteeing it would unfold that way. Some country could go in a, in a roguey fashion, but that's just very unlikely. And as you say, the, the likelihood at this point of a rogue actor doing something like this is, is very small. But yet when we see press coverage of this issue, it's often portrayed that way. We've seen movies and books about the idea that some rogue actor could come along. Is it a hindrance to the work that people like you do in this sphere to think of this as something that people might be afraid of or see as being a sort of science fiction plot? Not really. At this point, there's a small handful of us who are uh, researching this entirely publicly and openly. I publish everything I do, but I don't need more support than I'm getting. I'm you know, sitting in my workshop building tools. If the world turns out to need this, I won't need to sell it to the world. The world will come find me and say, wait, we've got a problem. 
So I'm not deeply worried about that. Uh, we won't do this unless there are lots of people, millions and hundreds of millions of people, mostly in the global south, who are demanding it. That's the circumstance in which we might actually do this. So until such time as those people are there, me and my colleagues are just toolmakers in a workshop. Absolutely fascinating interview. My goodness me, who would have thought that uh, solar geoengineering could be a thing? Uh, that was Wake Smith, a lecturer in geopolitics at Yale. Uh, producer Jennifer Crichton sat down with him uh, yesterday uh, because he's based in the States. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Good to have you back with us. Now, climate activists are coming up with ever more unusual ideas, shall we say, of how to deal with global warming. And the one that we're discussing on the programme this morning, I have to admit, I hadn't heard of before. It's called Solar Geoengineering. And it, essentially, it would involve dimming the sun to reduce the amount, obviously, that sun rays, of the sun's rays that come in, and, you know, and that would solve the problem, right? Right? Um, okay, so could dimming the sun solve the climate crisis? Let's discuss the viability of it from a sort of geopolitical view. In the last few minutes, if you missed it, we, we sort of talked about the scientific side of things. Uh, and it's well worth listening back to that interview if you want to on our podcast later today. But I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by Olaf Corrie, who is Professor of Global Security Challenges at Leeds University in the United Kingdom. He's currently researching the international politics of climate geoengineering technologies. Uh, Olaf, I don't know I don't know what's more worrying in some ways that the fact that you're researching that this client this climate geoengineering technologies because that makes it sound all the more viable, all the more feasible. I, I, I thought it was, to be honest, just a sort of crazy, you know, a sort of mad mad scientist idea. But is it is it genuinely being considered? So good morning. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a dilemma that I confront myself because by studying it I of course add to the idea that it's easily taken to be a real thing as you introduced it as a real thing but of course it's only a real thing at the moment in a climate model the only way in which this is real is in our is in our designs in our scientific uh, laboratories um, and mainly I have to say what we know about it what we think we know about it comes out of climate modeling and a climate model as we know, is just a model of the climate. It's not a model of the international system. It's not an internet. It's not a global political model. It doesn't tell us how the world would work with solar geoengineering technologies. It just tells us what are the potential or likely climate responses. So in a way, what we're, being, what we're building this on is a really partial set of information about what this phenomenon might end up being like. Because you'd have to have global consensus, right? And we all know how hard that is to achieve. <laughs> well, it's it's curious to hear Wake Smith um, almost assuming that it would be the global south that would make the decision that the most climate vulnerable people in the global south, as he said, you wouldn't do anything unless they wanted us to. Well, I admire his optimism and idealism, but I must say I don't think world history bears out this idea that, that the global South's interests are the guiding concerns and determining factors. Um, so what would be the determining factors? I think 
One of the dangers is that because it's conceived by climate scientists and it's debated within climate policy circles, there's an assumption that this thing would only be used for this specific climate purpose, that it would be driven by this sort of idea of a global good and that we could, um, even if it's physically, technologically feasible, that the politics of it are assumed to a large extent. Now, I don't think consensus um, would be possible on this, partly because if you devise, if it were possible physically, and, and I think there's a lot, still a lot of un unanswered questions, and I think Wake would agree with me on this, there's a lot of unanswered questions about the technological feasibility and the environmental side effects, et cetera. <clears throat> it's not just a, a fleet of a thousand specially built airplanes we need, for example. We also need to be able to have a very accurate attribution system. So we'd be able to, we would have to be able to work out what exactly was it doing once we'd started doing it. And we'd be able to, it would be incredibly difficult to, to sort out what was natural climate variability, what's just chaotic weather, what is the effect of underlying climate change driven by human emissions. And what then thirdly, if we were doing this, were the exact effects of doing this. And there would be an enormously difficult technical scientific question there that still isn't solved. Because but beyond that, yeah. But I mean, because realistically, maybe the, the countries around the equator want to be cooler. But if you're going to, cool, you know, ease the rays of the sun, realistically, you could end up with the countries nearer the poles becoming much colder all of a sudden. I, I mean, the mind boggles as to how on earth we think we would be able to uh, titrate this. It, indeed, the mind does boggle. <laughs> and... Um, the question would be, in whose interests would, would this be designed and calibrated and adjusted to the extent that it could be calibrated and adjusted in any sort of precise way? In whose interests and according to whose designs and whose risk assessments would we follow in this question? And I'm glad that Wake mentioned 2050 as the potential future date that this might come online because he also it also often gets sold as a quick solution, um, as something we could do quickly. But and, and most of the diplomats and, and people who practice international geopolitics who I've spoken to, they would estimate that to design an agreement or a, a sort of international architecture around how to handle this kind of technology would be a decades-long process. We know how difficult climate nego negotiations are just to build enough windmills and solar farms, etc., reasonably benign uh, technologies, how controversial would this be and how much would this be something that could be done on a consensus basis? I very much doubt it. Absolutely fascinating to discuss it. Nevertheless, even if it, it never happens, the fact that it's even being considered uh, it is quite, quite extraordinary in many ways. Uh, that is, if you've just tuned in, the idea uh, that climate scientists or solar geoengineerists, I suppose they would be, um, could look at different ways in which you could dim the sun to reduce global warming. Olaf Corrie, Professor of Global Security Challenges at Leeds University in the United Kingdom. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, certainly something for us to ponder over as we go into the weekend. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station.
Welcome back to the agenda. Good to have you with us. Now, it's fair to say that the self-driving revolution in the UAE appears to be ramping up at speed. I mean, just this week, in fact, in the last 24 hours, Abu Dhabi's launched the pilot phase of its automated tram project. Uh, it's basically a sort of railless bus tram thing that runs from Al Reem Mall to Marina Mall. It's 27 kilometres. Uh, and it's all part of their smart mobility strategy, which I happen to know that they are, they announced a sort of an expansion of that today. Meanwhile, here in Dubai, the Roads and Transport Authority in the last 24 hours has tweeted a picture of one of their self-driving taxis being trialled in Jumeirah 1. Now, I hate to call out the other news outlets, uh, and, and many of them, my brothers and sisters in, in my profession. Um, but they, this story is being sort of announced as brand new, uh, this idea of this self-driving taxi being trialled in Jumeirah 1, when in fact listeners to this programme will have known for some time that these cruise vehicles are undergoing tests in that area. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, no less, Ahmed Barozian, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Transport Agency at the RTA, exclusively told us that this has been some time coming. We announced a couple of years ago our plans for autonomous transport in Dubai and our commitment to achieve about 25% of trips by autonomous transport by 2030. It's a very ambitious plan. Very few cities, if any, have announced any specific targets towards autonomous transport, although many cities, of course, are moving in that direction. We believe that autonomous transport is the future. It makes driving a lot safer. It makes driving a lot more accessible for people who don't necessarily have access today to transportation and mobility solutions, and therefore our commitment to move in that direction. Our strategy has always been multimodal, so we already are on our way, if you like, to the 25% with the Dubai Metro, which is an autonomous transport system which carries approximately 11, 12% of transport trips in Dubai today and growing, of course. Um, the next step for us will be autonomous taxis that we announced a couple of years ago as well. We have a partnership with Cruise and uh, through that partnership, we hope to introduce the first set of autonomous taxis in Dubai. It will be a small number, but it will be a starting point for us, hopefully by the end of this year and towards the beginning of 2024. So we are currently in the process of testing those vehicles in the city and we are currently in the process of ensuring uh, safety. Of course, safety is paramount to us. But we still believe we are on course to launch uh, our first set of taxis. Of course, it will be a small number, as I said initially, but then it will grow as we go along. And we will start with the Bolt vehicle, the Chevy Bolt, and uh, progress to the Origin, which is a completely driverless, no steering wheel uh, vehicle, hopefully later in 2024, early 2025. That is really soon now. So where will we first start to see these taxis? In fact, can we see them already being trialed in certain areas of the city? Yes, in the Jumeirah area, for example, that's where we're doing a lot of our testing. We haven't yet decided exactly uh, where the launch area will be. We will be announcing that, of course, prior to launch. And it will be a limited access service initially, obviously with a small number of vehicles. It won't be open to everyone. But the objective is to start small, ensure that we are comfortable with the service, with the customer experience, with the safety aspects of the vehicles, uh, and then expand as we go along. But yes, some of the vehicles are on the roads and some people may have noticed them as well if they look hard enough. (laughs) (laughs) What are the main hurdles when you're looking to introduce autonomous taxis, for example, into a city? What do you have to have in place beforehand? Okay, so first of all, you need the right partnerships, of course, no doubt, because autonomous transport is a very niche market. Um, There are very few companies around the world who have reached a level where they are able to uh, consider commercial launch. 
our partnership with Cruise, of course, from the United States. We believe Cruise is the right partner for Dubai. We share the same values. We share the same ambitions and vision for autonomous transport. And we felt that they were the right partner for us. We felt that technology is advanced enough. Today in San Francisco, for example, and several other cities in the U.S., Cruise vehicles operate on a commercial basis. So the, the partnership is, I think, the most important aspect of this. Having said that, of course, Every city has its own, if you like, intricacies, its own characteristics. It doesn't necessarily mean that if you operate one of these vehicles in the U.S., that they'll automatically be transferable to a city like Dubai. Weather conditions, for example, may differ. You know, we have dust here, we have humidity. We need to make sure that, you know, the sensors, for example, the technology that's on these vehicles is able to handle the adverse weather conditions that we have here in the, in the UAE. Uh, at the same time, we have certain characteristics on our roads, for example, roundabouts that may not exist in the U.S. So we are still doing extensive testing here in Dubai and the UAE, even though, of course, these vehicles are well advanced in the U.S. and they're actually being offered to the public for commercial use. We still have to make sure that they are safe for the conditions here. Um, so that's uh, one major aspect of it, the partnership. But also, I think public perception is important. It's very important for people to understand why autonomous vehicles are being introduced. As I said, we are not doing it just because we want something fancy in our city or we want to be an early adopter. We are doing it because we believe that the future of mobility is autonomous mobility. As I said, it's safer. It will avoid many accidents, many deaths on roads. Most accidents occur due to human error and uh, therefore hopefully with the uh, technology enhancements or advancements of autonomous transport, those accidents can be very avoidable. And we believe that, you know, people in Dubai trust the government. The government is pushing this initiative forward. We will not introduce anything if there is any doubt around safety. We are very confident that once we launch a service, it will be extremely safe. And once people get to use it, hopefully over time, as we expand the number of fleet, expand the availability, I'm sure that it will become a normal part of mobility in the city of Dubai. Now, KPMG put out a report uh, back in 2020, which unbelievably is now three years ago, suggesting that the UAE was in the top 10 when it came to readiness for autonomous vehicles, for driverless vehicles. Do you think you'd be higher in that list now if they did it again? I think so, yes. I mean, in three years, a lot has changed. We've had regulation now in place. Maybe I think three years ago, we only had regulation for testing. We now have regulation for deployment, which allows us to deploy the taxis, as I said, in the upcoming few months. We also feel that, you know, the Congress that we are hosting this year is also an excellent opportunity for us to understand also and share knowledge, our experiences and gain from the knowledge of other countries and other cities around the world, with the objective being of how cities can advance autonomous transport and how they can reap the benefits of this technology. Fascinating there to hear from Ahmed Bahrosian, the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Transport Agency at the Roads and Transport Authority. And it is sports time and I'm joined on the line by Robbie Greenfield, one of our favourite sports commentators of all time. Robbie, I've got so much to talk about with you and a lot of it is nothing to do with sport. How are you? <laughs> oh, really? That's intriguing and yeah. quite worrying. OK, so let's just start with your uh, pop idol career and the fledgling, uh, you're, you're launching your singing career, which I, mm. I mean, they play your trailers during my show quite a bit. I've heard you sing more than I think I've heard Craig David sing in the last decade. Uh, well, careful now. We, we don't want to incur well, even more legal problems than we've already uh, I, uh, accrued with this, with this promo, Georgia. That's why I think given the flood of, uh, of complaints that I received personally <laughs> to my own WhatsApp from friends of mine saying, I'm never speaking to you again, uh, we had to take action and we had to take that promo off the air. Well, I was, wondered, I, I was wondering whether you might bring do another song. You know, I'm surely, surely we can find, you know. Well, uh, 
Yeah, I was thinking happy days, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, oh. Wednesday, happy days. I was thinking that, but then I thought I'd, I wouldn't want to put our listeners through that. You could be so, Robbie, um, Robbie as the Fonz. <laughs> I, I think we could run with no, that. No, the only man that would be capable of pulling off the Fonz would be Chris McCarty, and he can't sing. So uh, we're, at a, we're at a deadlock there. Okay, so that's topic one. Topic two, um, the owl as, as spirit animal. Robbie was asked what his spirit animal would be. Uh, Chris went with giraffe. Uh, Sonal went with otter. You went with owl. <laughs> well, I was forced into owl. I, went, I was forced into it after we decided they weren't that wise after all. You were because, put in of course, a corner. if they were, then, then I couldn't possibly be an owl. But, I was um, more worried about the, the beginning of the sentence, which was cut off, which started, uh, and owls can turn their heads 360 degrees. <laughs> And I haven't ever seen you do that. But... No, 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 I, I've never done that. But I, okay. I do tend to look around with a, an expression of alarm, rather like an owl might. But um, yes. I, I'd be much more comfortable discussing sport. If I we could, can, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't mention that I was going to do this. I tell you what, let's talk about the Rugby World Cup quarterfinals instead, shall we? What's yeah, this I mean, weekend? This is, oh, my goodness me. What a mouth-watering four matches. I'm going to say it, two matches. There's, there's another two matches. We'll get onto those. But okay. the, the top two matches, my word, what a Rugby World Cup quarterfinal billing we have got to look forward to over this coming weekend. Saturday sees Wales take on Argentina. More about that one in a second. But it sees the big one. It sees the, the match that I think so many of us looked forward to at this knockout stage. It is Ireland taking on the All Blacks. What a fixture. Ireland are the world's number one team. The All Blacks are the most historically successful rugby team to have ever existed. And when you think back to the fact Ireland only beat the All Blacks for the first time in their history as recently as 2016, they've subsequently beaten them four times in their last six meetings. And they do, believe it or not, go into this match as favourites against the mighty, the mythical All Blacks. But it's going to be an absolute heavyweight contact contest to, to end all others. It's going to be brilliant. Two teams that play very attacking rugby, New Zealand, I think, after that opening day defeat to France, have started to find their groove, started to find their rhythm in the tournament and write them off at your peril. But there is a feeling around Andy Farrell's Island at the moment that they may just be ready to get rid of this quarterfinal hoodoo. They've never gone beyond the quarterfinals and they've got to beat New Zealand to do it this time around. But there's just this feeling that Ireland might be ready to go all the way to the final and maybe even further than that in this Rugby World Cup. So that's tomorrow. I like Wales-Argentina. That's going to be an interesting one. Wales under Warren Gatland have, have, uh, have, have made a bit of a resurgence. Argentina, after that terrible performance against England, they've slowly worked their way back into the tournament. So expect a very close match there. And then in the other quarterfinal day, that is Sunday's matches, the big one again is the host France taking on the defending champion South Africa. Another real mouth-watering heavyweight contest this. France have got their inspirational scrum half back in the fold after he fractured his cheekbone because rugby is such a nice pleasant game georgia that's what happens when you play rugby horrible you, you do stuff like fracture cheekbones anyway he's back anton dupont is back in the fo the fold for the hosts and and i think they're marginal favorites to beat south africa despite the fact that as we know the springboks are the ultimate tournament team when it comes to the rugby world cup they won it last time around they've won it three times and they are super dangerous don't ask me about england fiji England have been terrible. Fiji put on a very, very poor display against Portugal, but they've played some pretty good rugby. I think England should win that game, but uh, don't be surprised if England 
once again put in a shocking performance and Fiji saunter to victory. You could see some real surprises this weekend, though. I mean, imagine if you end up with Ireland and France. In, with, could they be in a semi or would they end up meeting in the final? No, they'll, they'll go into a different side. So okay. I, think, I think how it works is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, England, if they do beat Fiji, they will play the winner of France, South Africa. But I need to double check that. No, South, South Africa, France, Ireland and South Africa are now going to be kept apart until the final. Okay. So, um, the, 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 you're right, though. You, you look at all four matches, you could make a really good case for all eight of those teams winning, if that makes sense. All four matches could yeah. go either way. And yeah. that, that's what you want. I mean, that, we've had uh, the Rugby World Cup's five weeks old now. It's, it's stretched out over a very long period. And Don't some of I the four it. matches have been a little underwhelming. But the, uh, the quarterfinals is, is where it gets really interesting. And, and the way the draw was lopsided in the pool stages, yes, you could argue that there's a deficiency there. But what we have got treated to is four quarterfinals of the highest quality and, and also the, the most amount of intrigue as well. You just do not know how to call it either way. Very exciting stuff. I love the fact that um, as, a, as a, a keen golfer, you, you find the idea of people beating each other up on the rugby pitch utterly horrendous. My children absolutely love it. Every time there's a massive tackle, they're like, oh, yes. Um, but anyway, those are the types of children I'm breeding. Uh, it's not the only World Cup going on, of course. Uh, what is happening in the cricket? We've been keeping abreast of that over the last week with Chris as well. Yeah, absolutely. The cricket has been very, very interesting. It's been a great start to the ICC Cricket World Cup. Not so much for Australia. In fact, Australia have had a rotten rugby World Cup and they're they're beginning to look like they might be having a similarly bad cricket World Cup, having entered the tournament as one of the favourites. They were trounced yesterday by South Africa. South Africa made 311 in their innings, which was a score that you felt, okay, it's good, but Australia could, could make a run at it. Not so. Australia were all out after just 40.5 overs. For 177, Georgia, they fell 134 runs short of their target. And when you look at some of the displays, the only player that really made a score was, was Marcus Labuschagne. The likes of Steve Smith, he just made 19. David Warner, Mitch Marsh. I mean, these guys are, are, are sort of big weapons in the Australian batting lineup, and they just haven't turned up yet to this World Cup. And that is two defeats on the bounce for Australia. They lost to India the first time out, and, and already the alarm bells are ringing because... There's some very strong sides in this tournament and you've got to finish in the top four of the group stages to make the semi-finals. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see if Australia can bounce back from this position. It all looks good for South Africa. They're two wins from two. Uh, uh, hats off to Quinton de Kock, who became only the second player after A.B. de Villiers to start the tournament with back-to-back centuries. So he's done very well. We're looking ahead to Bangladesh taking on New Zealand today and then it's the biggie tomorrow. Oh my God, if you think the Rugby World Cup is going to be watched by many. How about this one for the Cricket World Cup in Ahmedabad on Saturday? India taking on Pakistan. Both of those teams have won their first two matches. Pakistan looked really good in their run chase against Sri Lanka, but India are the hot favourites for this tournament, and they do seem to have a psychological stranglehold over Pakistan. So I cannot wait to be watching that one tomorrow on the sofa. Fantastic. Robbie, so are you working both days over the weekend as per the, 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 the sweeper, the, tr- the trailer? Absolutely not. No, I'm leaving that to my, my esteemed colleagues, Chris McCarty and Tom Urquhart. I am perched on the sofa watching a lot of sport over the weekend. That's en- how I like to do it, Georgia. Enjoy it very much indeed. Robbie Greenfield there, of course, uh, one of our favourite uh, sports commentators right here on Dubai I 103.8, plus also uh, the co-host of Offscript, which is your drive time show. Robbie, thank you so much. Uh, and I promise not to bring up either the same or the spirit animal ever again.
The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.